Well, we did it. We changed the name of uh, the chicken Kiev at Sainsbury's. Finally. Yeah, welcome to Kiev future. We, we yeah. changed the name of the Russian blue cat to the Ukrainian blue. Yeah, absolutely. We're, the, we're absolutely beyond parody. The, the, the cocktail is now a white Ukrainian. Is it really? I, I have hmm. seen with my own eyes a sign taped over a cocktail machine that said white Ukrainian. Now, for me, the terms white Russian and white Ukrainian have very different <laughs> associations. And I would be loath to use the second one. Feeling like a white Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Just feeling and, like a white Stefan Bandera. And, and, uh, <laughs> what, uh, what else Every is day happening? of his life, Stefan Bandera was feeling like a white Stefan Bandera. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, I also got accused this week of uh, funding and arming the Azov Battalion because I'm doing a benefit gig for the Ukrainian Red Cross. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. I'm like, Why oh, does that cross on, have all of the extra arms on it? Weird. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> uh, no, we, oh, sorry, <laughs> I got confused. Yeah, uh, the red swastika that only does Nazi aid. <laughs> I got confused. I forgot what a cross looked like, and instead, yeah, yeah. We, we will do, give you emergency surgery, but we will measure your skull first. Yeah. So wait, wait, wait. Is you forgot what a cross looks like? You just kind of wing it, and are like, uh, I mm. hope I stop here. Maybe I'll turn. Okay, try it again. <laughs> Hang on, why is all this food aid coming in the form of a one-pot meal cooked on a Sunday? <laughs> um, uh, uh, we all, all, but yeah, it's um, we've. I feel like we we've reached the freedom fries portion of uh, the sort oh, of. We're gonna get real yeah. dumb about this. We're gonna, yeah, absolutely. It's we gonna can't. Go we further. can't do anything, and so the only thing, quite literally, my, I have used the lathe. To terrible effect, because now it's been applied to foreign policy too, where the only thing we can do is the impossible, right? Yeah. The only thing, the only possible lever we can pull on now that we've used all of the sanctions is uh, start nuclear war with Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very funny, uh, and, and and I think I mean this is sort of what we're gonna gonna talk about a bit in the first. Yeah, because a bunch first of instance, people, By the way. Hmm. Uh, Hi everyone, it's TF. Oh yeah, hi. Uh, it's it's Alice Riley and Mel. You know the score. Uh, and uh, later on in this episode, uh, I will be talking R- to Russian troops approaching the buttery, garlicky center of Kiev. <laughs> I will be talking to uh, uh, Theo Riofrancos, who is a uh, professor at Providence College about mining. Uh, well, what kind? That's cool. Like computer or rocks? Uh, I forget. Uh, <laughs> Same thing. You know, well, they used to dig computers out of the ground in my day. Yeah. <laughs> what were you talking about earlier? The Arthur Scargill of the Bitcoin miners? Yeah, I thought, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. Arthur, I'm, I'm the Arthur Scargill of Bitcoin. Whatever that means. Yeah. Construct <laughs> your own bit from that sentence. Yeah, there it is. Uh, no, um, uh, we. I, I think it's like we because because sort of our every like, the experience of most people of like politics and political events. Is just so isolated, alienated, and enervated, but also like mediated entirely through like TV and the news or whatever. Mm. Just purely Same thing just, now. Yeah. Just purely this, it just a tidal wave of information bearing down on you. Then uh, all you can really do is be like, well, we're going to change the name of the frozen dinner. Yeah, well, the thing yeah. is, right, you know how I said that, like, no one predicted the Russian invasion except for me and a couple of other weirdos because nobody has autism, really. 
because we didn't do enough MMR jabs and we didn't manage to give everybody autism. I, well, now the problem is that um, now the news has engaged war mode, and now normal people who should, you know, go home and be a family man are, are, are DMing me, asking me what I think about certain makes of UAVs. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> I, I'm supposed to care about that. You're not supposed to care about that. Yeah. Well, what I learned from the OSINT guys was there's an even deeper level of autism because mm. some of the OSINT guys who like fully do this all the time, they didn't think there was going to be an invasion because they were like the Russian OPSEC was so bad and they were just letting civilians come and take photos of all their convoys and stuff. And they're like, you just wouldn't do this if you go to an invasion. And then they realized that the reason why they were doing that was because the Russian soldiers themselves had no fucking idea. Oh yeah, they all had return tickets, which is very funny. Incredible. What really shocked me, though, was not so much that they didn't know before they did it, but that a lot of them didn't even know they were invading Ukraine several hours in. It was only when they started being shot at. <laughs> that they, so lots of Russian soldiers genuinely thought they were defending themselves, having been randomly attacked on what they thought was a normal military oh exercise. My God. <laughs> Completely insane. I mean, and, and so it's, I think it's unsurprising to think, right, that we, that, that the, you know, the, this, this situation that's been made sort of ever more, you know, sort of tenuous, that to react to it just by being like, well, we're going to change the name of the frozen dinner. We're going to pour out the vodka. We're going to, mm. we're going to, you know. It's already called Chicken Kiev. That's <laughs> just gonna be, English. It's going to be Kiev. called Chicken Kiev now. I, yeah. I mean, that's the irony of it is that Kiev makes sense as a spelling in Ukrainian where they have two different kinds of I. It doesn't make sense as a spelling in English because that will just make people say it wrong. People will start saying Kiev, which is not the fucking <laughs> Labor name of the city. Labour leaders are Kiev Starmer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and but yeah, this, we've we've all know. gone insane, right? Because like, as we've established, there is nothing that the UK or even really NATO can now do other than start mm. nuclear war. Like our two options, having already done a shitload of stuff, like all of the like shipping weapons, training people, we'd already done that, and it's actually proved to be quite helpful. But right now, mm. our only like options for what do we do about this humanitarian crisis are, you know, absent attempt to care for some of the like refugees and the general fallout of it are yeah. mm. either A, do nothing, or B, destroy all life on Earth. And A yeah. is so intolerable to a lot of people that they're seriously pushing for B. It's really the two buttons meme, isn't oh, it? Oh yeah, I'm really sweating over this yeah, one. Well, they're, they're, I'm very excited if we ever get invaded by Russia and like the French, in a gesture of solidarity, will rename custard creme English. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for that. Don't like it um, as a creme. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I think I was like, that's basically like something I've been sort of just racking my brain. About. I'm trying to not rack my brain about, to be honest, for the last like mm. little while of just the sort of. Um, I think it's I'm it's racking. it's related to. <laughs> I think it's related to that kind of weird, per weird sort of obsessive media parochialism that makes you rename the mm. frozen dinner, uh, which is yeah. that essentially like our political and media machine knows only how to perform a spectacle and they are entirely woefully unprepared uh, to yeah. do something other oh. than pr pr perform a spectacle to engage with real events yeah, that they cannot dictate the terms of. It's so inward looking. I think British media has forgotten how mm. to talk about or to anything other than British people. And I think this leads you to um, possibly my favorite tweet of the last couple of weeks, which is an FBPE person saying, I can't be the only person who thinks that if the UK had voted to stay in the EU, this invasion wouldn't be happening. 
Yeah, because of that EU army that we'd be a part of. Absolutely. We would send the Eurocorps. And also because Vladimir Putin is pissed off at us because we left the EU, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what? Uh, I mean, like, you also you you see, like, the, you see sort of articles in, like, you know, like, uh, coming up saying, you know, oh, well, this, uh, it's a, now there's also proof that, like, the Russians were behind Trump and Brexit and all this. And we, we talked about this already, right? If they mm. supported it at all, they were pushing on a fucking open door. Yeah, but, like, sure. we're just using all of this. To relitigate all of the all of our favorite media fights of the last ten years, while at the same time there is an actual humanitarian crisis going on. Uh, there's an actual humanitarian. Well, there are lots of actual humanitarian crises going on. There's one that where like for like you know for for to be honest, pretty racist reasons, the the refugees have a more purchase on say the um, sympathy of countries that can provide them refuge. Oh, yeah. And fucking Preeti and Preeti Patel's um, uh, department was like, yeah, they can come here if they can pick fruit. They can come here I, for three months. That, that's been so funny to me, is that like every other country, every country in the EU has been like, uh, often quite explicitly, oh, well, these are, these are white Christians, therefore we will absolutely, they're not like other refugees, we will open every door for them. Uh, and Britain, however, stands alone, the last bastion of the cry-laugh emoji, still going, fuck off, we're full. Yeah. The British right are consistent. In much the same way as the American right are inconsistent because they defund everything except the police and the army, and the British right are like, no, that's left wing. You have to also cut the police and the army. We also <laughs> apply that to refugees. Even when they're white, we still don't want them. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's baffling, right? The, just having the courage of your own awful, awful convictions and being like, nope, still don't want them. Fuck off. Yeah. Being a true idealogue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, uh. if we want to think about like have, having the courage of, of your convictions as well, it's become very sort of instructive in the last week. Mm. I mean, since we last recorded, we are recording this on Thursday the 5th, on, excuse me, on Saturday the 5th of yeah, March. At, so, at, at time of recording, there is still a yeah. world to receive this. So, yeah. uh... so but, mm. um, but it's, um, I think that some of the most shocking things, right, have been the extent to which the people pushing hardest for, um, well, I mean, uh, number one, thank God the people pushing hard for their, hard for um, uh, a no-fly zone. Which again, it's what is it? It's a zone. It's like a no parking, right? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's not like the congestion charge. It's, it's like it's a, really a big yeah. Deal. It's like half a war. It's like a war, but good. Um, yeah. It's going to be camera enforced, and the Russian planes will get a ticket every time <laughs> they fly over. Yeah, we're, we're doing the ULEZ. Uh, yeah, that's right. It, I'm always it, doing does, the this, does this SU-35 have a Euro six compliant <laughs> engine? <laughs> but right, but that's where it seems like it's the it's the pundit class and the sort of mm. uh, liberal idealist uh, sort of wing of British politics, right? Who are uh, seem to be most keen, best on exemplified by Dan Hodges. Yeah. Britain's oh. greatest, most powerful brain. Once yeah. again, speaking Absolute about having genius. the courage of your stupid ass convictions, a man who took to Twitter and went, "Okay, well, we should do we should do a no fly zone, and we have to do something, and this is something, so this is the something that we should do." Uh, and and when someone in the well, well, many people in the replies went, "Okay, but if you do a no fly zone, you're going to have to enforce it, and if you enforce it, you're going to have to like shoot down Russian aircraft with, I guess, British aircraft." Um, so, so would you do that? And credit to Dan Hodges for engaging with this. Just immediately went yes, yeah, absolutely. It's the same thing with fucking uh, uh, this with, with Joe Swinson, right? Hmm. There's this weird, thi there's this, there's this brain slug atta attached to British liberals hmm. that makes them 
I think th- that makes them sort of Actually, so. Let's put a swing zone over Ukraine. <laughs> they need, they need to where I feel like they have this sense, this uh, this sense that they need to prove themselves that they're ard, right? Mm. That they're ard bastards. Mm. Yeah, it, like they all of them want to be uh, like impressive and tactical, and all of them want the troops to tell them that they're like being serious and. But like mm. the military doesn't want to do this, not least because it would start World War Three, but also because like it it makes no military sense. Like there's there's no reason. At least the time to, of recording. Yeah, there's uh, as yet there's no real reason to to do it. Like it's still yeah. The point where they've given the Ukrainians a load of planes and they're letting them base themselves out of Poland, which is kind of giving themselves a tactical advantage. And also like the Russian planes are having to fly low because they don't have any guided munitions. So fucking Ukrainian farmers are shooting them down with all the little toys we gave them. What sensible RAF officer would ever ever want any ah. of their planes flying over like a, a Ukraine where we have given every farmer and every farmer's mum every kind of man portable air defense system we can hand them um and i i think what what this sort of comes to right it's not just about like you know tweets and articles it's about this it's about this thing right where that where it's we've seen it happen sort of so many times before where the western sort of where like western poli- like liberal politics and press goes into, you know, war hysteria mode. And again, that's not to say that nowhere else doesn't, right? Like, hmm. uh, if, I think Russia has done that in a much worse way. But we, when, when we do it, like, you can see that there is this idea that, like, things like, that, that the considerations of, um, well, we need to get, we need to find off ramps, we need to get this conflict stopped as soon as possible, becomes just people competing with one another to see who can talk about escalation the fastest. And I'll tell you what I'm reminded of. Hmm. And this is going to seem strange initially, but I'll explain why. I'm reminded of QAnon, and that's because no, I believe I get what you're saying. Because QAnon is a group storytelling project where the, whatever narrative sticks is the one that one ups all the others the most. That's why I always say, like, it's they, the reason that they said that, that all like you know these Democrats were um, satanic pedophiles isn't because they have worries about child trafficking. It's because satanic pedophile is the highest stakes you can make it. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like, uh, you know, Trump is mobilizing the deep state against these people. It's like Trump is actually having them secretly executed in Guantanamo Bay because that's, you know, it, it one-ups the thing. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I get what you're saying. I think you're right. Yeah, and I think all, like situations like this, you know, they, they play into like a lot of people who are like less politically cynical, desire to, to like that we should be doing something. Yeah. And a lot of those people have like a quite uncritical engagement with it. And they see that quite a lot of Ukrainians are calling for a no-fly zone, which is like understandable. It's obviously very emotive for them. Mm. But like that that surely you should be thinking about this a bit more if you're a newspaper columnist. Yeah, well, because I think they they see themselves as just it it, it goes back even to like a lot of how we were talking about how they see themselves and ideas, right? Mm. They're just mm. well, they're just putting stuff out there. And if it's not a good idea, it'll get defeated in the marketplace of of debate. They don't see themselves as the no-fly zone of debate. Yeah, they don't see themselves <laughs> as manufacturing consensus. And what mm. they've and the and the scary thing is they They're have not done even doing that. it successfully. Like there ain't gonna fucking be one. Yeah, like, no. no way. It, it, but like what like that's the the ultimate endpoint for the British press. I think is trying to manufacture consent for the impossible. Like mm. if you tried to like if you got every British columnist on board was trying to blow up the mm. moon right that would be more likely to happen <laughs> as a result of them writing about it yeah <laughs> it's it's a combination of that and like Caitlin Moran being like I'm, I'm mm. I, oh that's the other thing right 
it's just like with coronavirus. It, it's so I think it's all sort of stitched together in this way, right? It, mm. That with COVID, right? The the standard liberal response in the states was, I want Fauci to blow my back out. Yeah. I want him to. I want him to like you know we'll bust you on me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And now yeah, it's the a no fly zone in my hand. A bunch of the same people are being like, "Damn, I want, <laughs> I want Zelensky to like you know eat my asshole." I, I mean, I'm trying to. Exp- mm. I've been trying to think about how I would explain Caitlin Moran to oh. to a non-British audience for a while, and I, I posted this, oh, but like fuck. the best I could come up with is that we as a country just kind of use her as like a a professional 14-year-old that we just keep around, I guess, and she's in this kind of like. Uh, stratum, right, of like former working class women like Tracy Emin or like Julie Birchall who have like worked their way into the media class and are now allowed to stay there on mm-hmm. the condition that they say all of the right things, which are tremendously yeah. weird things, and look every day a bit more like a fucked bird's nest. And in Julie Birchall's case, talk like this, <laughs> like a talking character. Um, yeah, that, that that's like a fascinating energy. I actually like Tra- Tracy Evans is also like so fucking weird. I like I met I met her once because um, I, I used to go out with someone who ran an art gallery, mm-hmm. and um, and she specifically came over because she wanted to talk to us. And then proceeded to like not say anything and just kind of like stand there like being really. And I'm like, why did you come over here? And then I was whispering in my girlfriend's ear, being like. Can I ask her if she's Banksy? And she was like, "You cannot do that." <laughs> she's like, like, "No, but it would no. be really funny." <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, what I was saying, but even bring up the Caitlyn Moran thing, is you can see like it's just these untenable situations getting more and more tense, and then just mm. these intensely personalized. Uh, sort of reactions to the news. It's like I like Zelensky. He makes me horny. We're gonna rename the mm. name of the of the chicken frozen uh, uh, dinner. Um, yeah, well, you know, Zelensky. you know what it is, right? It's that the British media class copes very poorly with powerlessness and realizing its own powerlessness, uh, and that's why they're all like, "Oh, we can't just do nothing," um, because they're in uh, an almost unique position in Britain of 2022, uh, where they have uh, not yet been forced into a situation where they've not been able to do anything before. Um, th- this is like a totally novel sensation to them, and I, for that, you know, they have a little bit of sympathy for me. Yeah, well, it's yeah, good. and also all of this kind of like banning of like Russian stuff that's going on is like really put a bad taste in my mouth. Oh like, yeah, like canceling fucking like Russian ballets and shit. Like the extent to which like everyone I know in Russia is like completely terrified of what's going on and their own government, and like it's like a very weird stance to take if anything like having spoken to quite a few friends in ukraine and in russia the ones in russia seem more fucking terrified than the ones in ukraine do the ones in ukraine have like a kind of sense of unity and like they're fighting for something the ones in russia are just like completely despondent i mean i'd I'd be a lot more scared that like the fsb was going to kick my door in or whatever than yeah some of my friends have literally been threatened by the fsb have come to their house and absolutely like do not say anything it's genuinely very frightening the extent to which it turns out there is just a big repression switch in putin's office i guess and you just turn the dial all the way to the right you can clearly see across the british media uh and political sort of firmament everyone trying to sort of make this about their own thing uh which only Mm. i think makes the world a sort of in, in as much as they might be successful, which is, you know, even though they're creating super majorities of like polled support for these kinds of things, like, yeah, that we can hope they won't be, which is, and, and the, the sum total of, of that, right, is that they can't escape their, their boxes. 
You know, it's why you see, uh, you know, articles being pushed now. Where it's like, ah, well, why, why hasn't Corbyn denounced the the, the war in, in Ukraine? It's like, well, no, he has. Why are you asking about him? He's one MP. Um, but also, what we like, need, what we need yeah. is an airspace in Ukraine that's restricted to women and girls. <laughs> Maybe I should start demanding that Vladimir Zhirinovsky comment on every bit of British politics. <laughs> Why has Vladimir Zhirinovsky not, not denounced Boris Johnson's birthday party? That's what I want to know. If there's any Russian politician that would, it would be him. On the basis yeah. that it's like, birthday parties are decadent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he'd be like, this is, this is gay. <laughs> you should try working in mine, Bitcoin or otherwise. <laughs> um, but, no, but it's the, you can see this as well, right? Where it's like, the, t- being totally enveloped in this spectacle means that we can only engage in spectacular responses. It's it's like right? a, it's like a tape player that's like unwound on one end and it's just spooling down back in on itself. Yeah, and it's just it's it's just sort of it's because like Liz Truss, right, is like yes, I <sighs> think it was going. I off the never dome. thought that a Tory girl boss could be a, a threat to global security, and I was wrong about that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also it's weirdly like highlighted something which I've been going on about for a while, which is how like Russia in people's imaginations differs so much from like the reality of what Russia is like. Like, I mean, we talk about like Britain and America being like decla- decaying, sclerotic former empires, but my God, Russia like turn it times a hundred. Like the extent to which like all their trucks have been falling apart because they haven't been used in five years, and like the tires have rotted and all this shit, and just like none of their soldiers know what they're supposed to be doing. Meanwhile, Ukraine, it turns out, is a nation of just Terry Peck, <laughs> like, just like. <laughs> Every man, woman, and child is like, I will drink the blood of the invader. Um, and so that the, all of this stuff are kind of about like a no-fly zone or whatever. It's like kind of, I don't know, the Ukrainians are kind of giving him a schlacking, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think like if you want to talk about trust, right, it's her comments about like uh, you know, regime change sponsoring, saying, yeah, if you're in the British Army, you can just go do freelance or whatever. Again, like unbri- clearly unbriefed, just again... Mm trying to perform for a spectacle of domestic media consumption without yeah. really understanding that anyone else is going to see it and can act on it. Oh, the gym guys. I loved the Sky News report on the gym guys. We've had the gym just guys. a bunch of big, beefy dudes who were just like, yeah, I've got no military experience, but, you know, got to help them out. And the people who <laughs> do have military experience, this leads me to my favorite BBC article where they went to a collection point where people were, like, handing in, like, body armor to transport to Ukraine. And they spoke to an Essex military surplus dealer who asked to be known only as Wazza. Um, <laughs> and Wazza was in the, in the course of sending fucking desert <laughs> desert uniforms to Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, the desert bog. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I. <laughs> If if the Ukrainians like survive for any any even greater length of time, it will be solely down to the force of like Essex military surplus guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're gonna talk a little more about um about definitely an interesting type of British guy after my conversation with Thea. See you in a sec. Thank you, Past Riley, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, hi, everybody. It's me, Riley. Uh, from before, you remember before, the podcast you were listening to. 
And I'm speaking with uh, Thea Rio-Francos, who is uh, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College in the States, and who writes on, um, on extractivism, climate politics, uh, and, and the left. And she recently had an article in Foreign Policy that I really wanted to talk about um, that was all about the onshoring of uh, mining, right? The onshoring of, of mining operations, uh, especially to do with um, the metals that power the alleged upcoming electric vehicle revolution. And, uh, and we, when we were talking, and, and she mentioned, do you think it's an, an under-discussed, under-theorized, under-thought-about uh, bit of left politics, and especially, of course, the resistance to um, extractivist, often very imperialist and hawkish, as we'll talk about capital, and one in which actually some victories have been scored for the good guys, so to speak, in the last few years. So, Thea, thank you very much for coming and talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Um, so, I'm just going to start us off, right? Because um, what do we what do we mean when we talk about like uh, uh, onshoring versus offshoring? Why are these minerals important? Uh, can you just give us a bit of the lay of the land? Yeah, there, there's so much to say because there's so much about the past few decades of global capitalism and political economy that are like smushed together in this onshoring phrase and in, and in thinking about so-called critical minerals. So I think just to step back a little bit, um, I'm sure listeners are familiar and you're familiar with like the hegemony of neoliberal globalization, right? This is the hegemony we've been living under for the past couple of decades in which it was taken as a kind of article of faith that the best way to organize the economy is to send production, whether it's extraction like mining or whether it's factories, just send all of that to wherever it's quote unquote quote unquote cheapest, right? Wherever quote labor is cheapest or nature is cheapest, um, wherever it's most economically efficient, wherever there's so-called comparative advantage. So these are kind of like the principles of neoclassical economics that undergirded the Washington consensus of, of, of neoliberal globalization. And that, you know, all of our um, economic elites, political elites, foreign policy elites were totally happy with that. They promoted it a lot. And this is on both sides of the pond, right? In the US, the, the UK, the European Union, we're all avid fans of neoliberalizing and globalizing uh, economic production. Um, then all of a sudden, kind of, I mean, if you weren't tracking this closely, it would seem like a very sudden shift. During the pandemic or, you know, in the past year or two, all of a sudden elites are like worried about supply chains. They're like, wait a second, we have created this global economy in which production is spread out everywhere. There's a lot of spatial dispersion uh, between the beginnings of production, whether again, it's mining, logistics, factories, and where things are ultimately um, consumed. In addition, there's some quote-unquote vulnerabilities built into what's called just-in-time production, a wonky phrase, but it just means you keep inventories and costs as low as possible so that not a cent more is spent on anything and you maximize profits, right? So during the pandemic, all of this suddenly seemed like a problem, right? It seemed like a problem that Certain places uh, were where uh, protective um, equipment was imported from, and there were snarls in those supply chains. It also seemed like a problem that inventories and stocks of certain essential goods were quite low. And elites started talking about, like, maybe we should, we in the global north, to be clear, in the US, Europe, UK, maybe we shouldn't have sent our production everywhere else in the world. Maybe we should bring it back, right? Right. And I, I also want this to resonate a little bit 
with the kind of Trumpian moment, with the Boris Johnson, you know, with this sort of idea that like, we need to be great again, again, underscore we as the global north. Um, and so there's a competitive and, and geopolitical kind of logic here. But a lot of kind of trends and patterns came together in this idea that we are losing the global economic game. Also, there's a lot of vulnerabilities and lack of resiliency. And we should bring everything that's important back within our borders. Um, and so this is a change that unfolded over time. And like many changes that we're currently witnessing was accelerated by the pandemic, but, but preceded it and also sort of overdetermined. Um, but we're, we're seeing it play out, I think, most concertedly at this moment around what we could call the supply chains of green technologies. And green technologies, another piece of jargon, but a useful one to know, are technologies that purport to save us from climate crisis. And I say purport, not some of them do save us, some of them are just speculative and whatever. It's a mix, it depends. Um, I'm not like against green technologies, but we should sometimes be wary when things are called green or clean. Um, these technologies, like everything else that I just mentioned, like fast fashion, like food, you know, whatever, are produced through these global supply chains. Um, and But what's kind of interesting about them is that we think of these technologies as green or clean, and they also do, you know, have their role in mitigating and transitioning um, to a mitigating climate crisis and, and transitioning to a renewable energy system. But like everything else under capitalism, they begin with appropriation of nature in the extractive frontiers of our, you know, world system. And I think it's that kind of dissonance between the fact that they are climate saving technologies potentially, um, but have lots of environmental and social impacts, especially at that point of extraction where the minerals to make them are exploited. That kind of should call our attention a bit as, you know, climate advocates, as environmental advocates, as, you know, as leftists and to kind of think about, think about that tension. Um, and the last thing I'll kind of say here, I'm throwing out everything at once, but we'll put it all on the table and then we can dissect a bit, is that, you know, as I sort of started to mention, Western, quote unquote, governments, US, UK, Europe, um, are increasingly seeing these supply chains, the ones that produce electric vehicles, solar panels, wind turbines, etc., these green technologies, are increasingly seeing these supply chains as, in their words, critical or strategic to geopolitical dominance, right? And they use this language very explicitly. And so the question is, why are they seen as critical, but maybe even also as importantly, or more importantly, like, what will applying this security and hawkish lens to green technologies do in the world? What will it achieve? What work will it do? And what kind of consequences might it have? We talk about like the, um, that uh, the, the state sort of pushing outward to sort of find you know Im imperial expansion abroad, but I, I think that the what what sort of brings this together, what makes it a kind of you know modern imperialism of just a place chasing the capital chasing the frontier, is is, is that I, I sort of tend to see this right as modern the the main thing that modern imperialists are interested in doing they've understood that in an age where everything is financialized you don't go to iraq to get what iraq has you go to iraq to mine the most valuable resource of all which is the us treasury right and when we talk about uh you know uh, giveaways to uh to companies whether you know they're taxpayers giveaways or sort of money printing giveaways or whatever you know they're kind of they're they're doing the same thing they're just they're just they've found a new frontier, which is in deindustrialized America, a place that is wrecked, right? 
that they they go in and for the um and to sort of go about unwrecking it a place that you know they wrecked when they left uh they can then feel free to mine the treasury or the public purse as much as they want because you don't need gold you just need dollars because you can you know borrow against those you can lend them and so on and so on so i i sort of see i this is how i kind of see that relationship between um between sort of the imperialism finding new frontiers in the sort of old heartlands of the metropole, because it doesn't care where it is, it, it, our capital, is it just needs it just needs a frontier. It just needs a place where it can draw value, and it's realized, hey, I don't, we don't need any anything fucking real. We can ju- we can just change the items in the balance sheet, and the um the treasury is happy to help us do it, whether it's in Iraq or Ohio. Yeah, um, and 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 that's also something I, I want to go on to now. Right, we've talked about like. These these industries sort of in in the abstract, right? But I think people who are sort of clamoring for the onshoring of of, of you know, for example, lithium mining, right? Um, there's a whole lot of PR around it that says, "Oh, this is great, this is clean," uh, and we're assuming that mining in the global north will by ne- by necessity be more responsible than mining in the global south, even though it's the same countries doing it. Um, and like Canada, for example, you, it has uh, Canada. Um, we say, okay, well, we're going to do you know mining in Canada, and it's going to be more responsible because it's in Canada. But I think that's hardly true because it's a Canadian company uh, that tried to, I believe, flood a Romanian town with arsenic so it could mine gold from a nearby mountain. It's a Canadian company that uh, rewrote Bolivia's mining code so that like there would they could reduce royalties paid to like you know, the local government to like less than four percent of what they ought to have been. You know, I mean, it's the the idea that these are going to be more responsible just for being in the global north is, you know, on its face absurd. But could you talk a little bit more about like what people's fantasy of onshore mining is and how that's sort of created by the industry itself? Yeah, I think that the like apotheosis of how absurd this discourse is, um, but and also like the the real world implications of it, is this idea that not only is our global north based mining companies like more quote unquote responsible than like Chinese companies or companies in the global south? And also that like operations based in the global north, like mining in the global north is like ipso facto, you know, just like prima facie, sorry, wrong Latin, uh, prima facie, like more responsible than mining elsewhere in the world, right? So, so that's like one version, but like the worst version of this discourse, and, it, and the Canadian stuff reminded me of it because the Canadian mining companies are very good at this is that mining companies, the companies that pull gold, copper, lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, everything out of the ground to make a variety of technologies, but including the quote green technologies, that mining companies are climate saviors. They have been like working on this discourse for a while. It started, I think, and don't I don't worry, I will get to what mining is actually like, but I just want to I just want to layer on this one other piece. So you know, for a long time, and I study this in Latin America for like over a decade now, mining companies have had confrontations with local communities and movements. And in those confrontations, they have tried to kind of like, um, uh, play up their responsible, um, community, environmental, blah, 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 like clean water, like, like sort of bona fides, they have said, like, we're good for the environment, we're good for the community, we're good for the local. So at the local level, they've been working at this kind of corporate social responsibility discourse for a long time. But what's happening now that is interesting is that they are projecting this like well beyond the local community, um, in policy circles, you know, with broader publics and saying like, 
because green technologies like electric vehicles, lithium batteries, solar panels, et cetera, because all of those technologies begin with mining, that means mining is good for saving the planet and, and mining companies are climate saviors. And then this gets very twisted because this framing is extremely productive for them and allows them not only to frame themselves as like good for the environment and good for climate change because they're going to produce the EV or they're, you know, they're part of producing the EV, but they also then get to frame protesters against lithium, against copper, against all of these mines as bottlenecks. And this is the literal language used. As also, if, I can, if I can jump in now, not just as bottlenecks, but also as threats to the national security now because yes. they're standing in the way of transitioning away from fossil fuels that are uh, you know coming from elsewhere. Yep, and I I have an academic article I'm working on now where I call this the security sustainability nexus. This idea that like somehow security and sustainability are the same thing and anyone that opposes either of them, right, is like is like not just standing in the way to climate action but national security. It's a very productive set of discourses. So again, like leftists just be on alert for it. But let's let's talk a little bit about what mining is actually like um, and how it maybe would or wouldn't change if it's expanded in the global north. Um, So mining is, you know, I think it's safe to say one of the most one of the top like three, if we wanted to rank them, most destructive economic sectors in the world. And it's hard to rank because fossil fuels, which is kind of its own sector, overlaps with mining, right? Fossil fuel extraction is a form of mining. This is clear with coal, but we could apply this to, you know, any any type of fossil fuel extraction as a form of mining. Um, So, you know, we might want to single out fossil fuels as being number one most destructive because local impacts plus planetary warming. But any other type of mining is also up there as the most destructive. And it is, I mean... I just encourage listeners to go on Google Images and look at what a modern, contemporary, large-scale mining operation looks like. And, you know, you're not going to necessarily see pictures of, like, destroyed wildlife or whatever, because what you're going to see is a place that has been totally converted into a mine. And so all evidence of, like, natural habitat or human communities that might have resided there previously is kind of wiped away. And instead there are pits that are hundreds of kilometers wide. I mean, they're just, they're hard. I've, I've seen one of the largest copper mines in the world in Chile, the Chicacamata mine. I think it's the largest open pit copper mine um, or it's number one or two. Anyway, and it's like, you can't even see it all at once. It's hard to describe. Like I was standing on the precipice of it with like a, an, on an official tour and it's like just too big to take in all at once. And the trucks that move material in and out are too big to even describe. They're just like so much bigger than normal trucks, right? So just to get, so what it does is it massively displaces habitats, communities, um, in order to like dig enormous holes in the earth that expose all sorts of materials that are normally subsurface to the air, which results in all sorts of like weird oxidation and acidification and all sorts of strange processes that can contaminate soil and water. In addition, that all sorts of chemicals and chemical agents and reagents are used to mine, but also to process and refine, which further contaminates soil and water. In addition, that there are many instances in which entire towns or villages are forced to move and relocate. So they're dispossessed of their land and their former livelihoods. Um, And then we could just go down the list because there are so many impacts. And I also want to just say, because in addition to all these like biodiversity, local livelihood, community, uh, water and soil uh, and air contamination 
what we might call localized impacts, there's also climate change impacts, right? Because, and I want to underscore this because of this idea that mining companies are going to save us from climate change. All of this runs on fossil fuels, right? If you go to a mine site, you will just notice tons of generators, tons of trucks, tons of diggers. Like, what do those run on? Some of them are converting their operations to be renewable, which is kind of an amazing, just let's not even go there because like, whatever, the idea that that makes it like impact free is crazy. Like, even if this was all done on renewable energy, it would still be bad because of the scale and just like the devastating effects of mining. But, um, but for now, it's also runs on fossil fuels. So actually, the mining sector is itself like an important contributor to global warming. Um, um, and, and so this is what mining looks like. And then on layered on top of all of this is like the additional injustice, which is that the places where mining tends to occur, not exclusively, but like overall and in a, in a pattern are places that are what we might call sacrifice zones. That's language that activists use, right? They are places that are already marginalized. Often there are places where indigenous people live or where other peasant communities live that are marginalized from political and economic power in the world and in the countries where, where they reside. Um, and so they are kind of sacrificed. So there's this total inequality between where the resources are mined and then like through those complex supply chains that we talked about earlier, where those commodities ultimately end up and who actually benefits from them, uses them, consumes them and profits from them. Like there's an inverse relationship almost between whether you are affected by the extractive frontiers of technological production and whether you benefit from that technological production, either because you consume it because you own the Tesla or because you're Tesla and you profit from it. Right. And so we have to just keep that in mind. And that is what it looks like now. Um, and, and for good reason, and it's, you know, uh, obvious and also, but important and inspiring that this is the case. There are tons of really valiant and militant anti-extractive movements around the world, including on the frontiers of green tech, right? So including around lithium and copper and cobalt, um, and nickel that have resisted, um, uh, the expansion of this frontier. And despite the extreme asymmetry between those marginalized communities and their movements and these multinational firms and the governments that are behind them, um, despite that asymmetry, it is such a critical choke point. Like if a community can blockade with their bodies, you know, or with their placards, you know, with whatever they use, a mine, they can force that company to the negotiating table or they can just stall it. Or the sometimes best case scenario actually is that they scare off investors. So investors just deem this too risky, the project is abandoned, and the community wins that way. So I do want to emphasize that there's a David and Goliath piece here. It's not all just about elite designs. It's also that there's real grassroots resistance um, at these frontiers. So I'll pause for a second. I want to just sort of let that sink in. And then we can talk about like, how would onshoring change this picture? Would it change this picture or not? That's, that's the question that I try to address in the piece. But I think knowing like the status quo ante is, is important. And so I think to come just to the real nub of what we're talking about here, we've talked about sort of the way that the extractive industries are linked with imperialism, the way they're linked is, it's itself with climate change, the way that like it's sort of almost a like a like a, a three card monty, right? Where you think, oh, we're we're taking the um, we're taking the sort of the fossil fuels out of the um, out of the supply chain, but actually no, we're just putting them somewhere else less visible, right? Uh, how? How does onshoring sort of propose to change that? Like, what's let's get to the real sort of nub of the issue. Yep. So, um, a couple of key things. Onshoring is not underscore is not 
picking up extractive operations, the lithium mining in Chile, the copper mining in Chile and Peru, um, you know, the nickel mining in, um, in Indonesia and Philippines, the, um, uh, um, and Russia, um, um, the cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So these are some primary like ex- producers and exporters of these minerals currently, right? So it's not going to literally pick up those operations and like physically trot them over to the global north. Those operations will continue. They will expand. Every single existing extractive frontier in the global south, especially those related to the energy transition, are are expanding, right? Like they're the those governments are being pressured by firms to give them more land to extract, right? So so the expansion of the global south not only continues, but it increases, it intensifies. I want to just flag that because this is not about reducing extraction and it's not about literally relocating it. Um, it can feel that way, but it's not. Okay. What is it then? What it is, is the extraction of the global South continues. All the inequalities and injustices that attend to that continue. Um, uh, they're only changed through resistance, grassroots resistance and progressive policymakers there. But what happens in the global North is that new extractive operations set up shop. And how can we have like just more? Well, because, I mean, this might seem obvious, but it's just, again, it's like worth stating the, the demand pie, like the overall demand projections for these minerals, especially again, the ones related to the Teslas, to the, to the solar panels, to the energy transition stuff is growing like orders of magnitude, hard to keep in your brain. Some of these figures, the uh, international energy uh, agency predicts a 4,200, that's 4,200 percentage increase in lithium demand between 2020 and 2040. They wrote that in, in 2020. I'm sure that they'd actually uh, go up with that with that prediction at this point because lithium demand is like unprecedented through the roof. The prices are through the roof. The share prices are going up. It's total boom times, right? So in a boom, more and more projects are brought online, are financed, are invested in, are permitted in order to um, uh, uh, sell to this growing market, right? And so you can have more in the global south and new and more in the global north. And there's plenty of demand to kind of sop it up. Um, so I wanted to clarify that. So we have more total planetary mining is the is the end is the sort of upshot here. And then there's a second question. So we know that like mining in the global north doesn't mean less injustice in the global south. It just means injustice in the global south plus new injustices elsewhere, closer to home. Um, and we also know that, um, as I mentioned earlier, that the way that this onshoring is achieved is by giveaways to corporations, right? So we also know that like, it doesn't mean that like progressive things are, are necessarily happening in the global north, right? Um, and then let's go to literal onshoring in the global north. So we know how it happens. We know it doesn't make it better in the global south. But is it maybe better than in the global south? Meaning, even if mining continues apace elsewhere, is the mining that happens in the global north and the supply chains that that is feedstock for more responsible, more environmentally rigorous, more ethical even, right? Fewer in- human rights violations. Um, can we expect that of mining in the US, Canada, UK, and Europe? That's the argument. Um, I don't want to say that there's no difference between mining in the global north and south. I think one thing that could be said, and this just shows you how low the bar is, is that probably more people will be would be killed in the global south versus global north in relation to mining. And and what I mean is exactly as literal as it sounds. Like um Latin America is the number one place in the world where uh, land and water defenders are killed 
either by governments, by paramilitary and security things, by the private corporations themselves, by organized crime that is paid by the extractive industries, by whatever assailant. Um, Number one place in the world, Latin America, for for people that are resisting extractive projects to be killed. Um, I don't want to downplay the carceral state in the U.S., which kills plenty of people. But I don't foresee quite as much killing within the U.S. um, with these onshore mining operations. But I would say just about any other downside of mining (laughs) will be reproduced in the global north, right? And in fact, I took a really close look because I was open on this question. Like I try to be a materialist. I try to be an empiricist. Like I want to look at what's actually happening before jumping to conclusions. I was ready to... I was open to believing, I'll put it this way, that that mining regulations and the environmental regulations related to mining are better in the US and Europe and UK than in, than in Latin America, Africa, South Asia, right? I was open to that. The more I looked, the more I was not convinced. I don't, again, I don't want to make too broad a statement. I'm sure that there are some better regulations, better enforcement. There's certainly more state capacity and money to enforce um, these things. Um, and there's less asymmetry between corporations and the state. Um, compared to the global South, but the regulations are not as good as one might like. And I'll just give like just two examples. Um, in the U S the law that regulates mining that happens on public land, which is a side note, interesting. A lot of mining happens on public land in the U S federally owned land. Um, the law that regulates that. And so that regulates a lot of these new lithium projects that are coming online, um, dates to 1872 which should ring two bells. One bell should say, that's a really old law. It's probably not adequate to contemporary mining. Like large scale mining is totally different than like late 19th century mining was. But the other bell that it should ring, I'm going to pause myself. So the second bell it should ring is that 1872 was like the moment of like one of the like high points of like genocide against indigenous people and of westward expansion in the US, right? So our mining law is like part and parcel of settler colonialism in the US, right? It is not only not designed to protect communities from the ravishes of mining companies, it is also designed to encourage mining as a form of territorial expansion. So in in your article it concludes like with with what is to be done, right? And you know, in addition to like um some in, in addition to sort of some things that are sort of, you know, um I think obvious from what we were discussing, right? Like we said earlier, it's like, well, this is what's needed to save the world if we also want to hold like car culture, for example, constant, right? That, you know, you say in your article, it's like we have to, um, that you have to push for a politics of, say, mass transit, car-free cities and so on. But also that, you know, the fight for global, for global justice in this respect is at the same time a fight for indigenous people's rights. So this is uh, enforced right to community consent. And again, as as a Canadian, I'd be like, boy, do Canada, do, does Canada love violating that? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, indigenous people's rights to prior consultation and consent, um, but also uh, moratoriums on, on sort of sensitive on mining and sensitive ecosystems as well, right? And that these things sort of, it's a complex problem with complex causes. And so the solution is complex. You wouldn't immediately think that it's both sort of strengthened um, sort of rights and, and support and solidarity with um, indigenous land defenders would be a would be one of the tools in a toolkit that also has more mass transit. But it absolutely, from what your article says, is, and I find that to be very convincing. Yeah, I think you know, given especially the theme of this podcast, like the main takeaway is that there isn't a technical or just purely technological 
solution to this problem, right? It's not like we can just mine better. We also have to mine less, mine in different places, and think about the the role of mining in broader supply chains, right? Um, I am all for coming up with technologies uh, at at both ends of the supply chain uh, that are less, um, uh, you know, environmentally intensive, right? Like there surely are somewhat better ways to mine things, right? And better ways to regulate that mining, right? And there also are like battery designs and uh, car designs that need fewer mined resources, right? So I don't want to say I don't care about the tech stuff or the engineering stuff. But I think at its heart, this is a political economy problem, not not a technologically narrowly understood problem. And what that means is is two things. The only way to get better outcomes is for the people being harmed, uh, the communities um, at various parts of the supply chain to um, have more power to resist that harm and to transform it into something better for them. Um, And also that everything's connected, right? So what drives so much mining is not some like exotic feature of global South landscapes. It is the fact that commodity resource frontiers are like endogenous. They're like internal to the overall mode of production and consumption, right? So what happens upstream in the language of supply chains, like all the way at the attractive node, is really driven by what happens downstream. Like what kind of transportation system, what kind of energy system, what kind of energy transition is being designed by corporations and policymakers. And that reverberates all the way back to the mines in Chile and elsewhere, right? And and so I think in order to understand what drives mining and its harms, we have to have a supply chain and a sort of global capitalism view, which then, of course, in terms of our solutions means it's not a tech fix. It's about changing power relations everywhere that, you know, there's leverage, right, to do so. Um, and also about a deeper rethinking about like how, how, what kind of energy transition and knowing that there's more than one way to transition to renewable energy. And one way is to preserve everything about the status quo and swap in solar for oil. And the other way is to take this as a critical juncture and an opportunity to change much more about the way that we we in the global north live um, so that it's less resource intensive. Absolutely. I, I think that's as good a place as any to call it. Uh, Thea, I want to say thank you so very much uh, for coming and hanging out with me today. It was really a pleasure. All right. Uh, back to me in the studio later. Wow, that was so interesting. I learned a lot about mining. <laughs> yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, Milo and Alice, you guys stay pretty quiet for that conversation. Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't want to like um, interrupt, really. I just had nothing to add. No, no, you really covered everything I would have said so perfectly that it would have felt... I learned a lot about mining. Yeah, I, I, I know a lot about, um, uh, I assume it's... Non-specific mining. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, extraction, really. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Mm. No, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit. I, I, I read an article. Uh, I think we need a little bit of a little bit of a palate cleanser. Oh, after that oh, interview? Yeah. I mean, we yeah. got into such detail that like really I think we do. We're gonna take a hell of a sorbet. Mm. <laughs> this is basically a an article about a, a classic guy. A classic type okay. of guy. Oh. A man called a Regency Fellow. A man called Robert McGinnis, who was the owner of various like sort of children's homes and uh, uh, sort of school, like schools specifically for children excluded from mainstream education. Oh, is that a British guy, owner of a children's Interesting. home. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm getting a sense of the kind of vibe of this guy. My fucking like inland empire thing is going off here. Okay. It's, it's not. Alice, you've not seen this article. No. Give me your spidey sense. Pedophile. 
Uh, We have to absolutely have to take that out. I know. (laughs) (laughs) What I would suggest, what I would suggest here is is cut that into perfect silence or like some kind of sting and then just to you going, we have to take that out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So, no, this is from a, this is a Guardian article. And again, we're reading the article more to think about the content of the article, Mm. not to make fun of the article itself. Mm. Revealed money for educating excluded children in Bolton Funded bar owners' social life. Ooh. Uh, Okay, I thought this was going to go in a different direction, but instead it's just regular, ordinary corruption, allegedly. Yeah. Is he like is he like a sex parties guy? No, that's no, kind of no, no, no. He's like bar well, owner in Baltimore. We'll s- I'm going to show tell you what he spent the money on. Is there a jacuzzi at this bar? And then you can tell me um, what it is. Uh, you can tell me mm-hmm. what kind of guy you think he is. So. All Basically, right. uh, the owner of it. So the um, the children's home has been shut down uh, for serious and widespread failure now. But he spent thousands and thousands of pounds borrowing from the charity. Uh, that was like because how it works in Britain for Americans, right? Is that if there are kids who've been expelled from school, right? They still have to be educated, so they end up going to special schools, and the council pays huge amounts of money to those special mm. schools per place, right? So it's actually very very lucrative. Hmm. This um, this was slightly an improvement on our previous system of putting them in prison. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Uh, so, um, they spent thousands intended for educating marginalized children instead on drinking, foreign trips, and his pub business, I, which later failed. I know what type of guy this is. Now, yeah, Alice, what legend? A hundred percent. He's oh, a yeah. fucking ledge. He's a boozy ledge. Was, sorry, was that? How was this man not elected as a Tory MP? Re, like in twenty nineteen. There is 100% a file photo of this man stood on top of a bus stop mooning the police. Um, well, no doubt in my mind. The picture in the article is of him just sitting in a Lamborghini with the door open, wearing a white shirt and light jeans. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so between what's, Do we have the shoes in there too? What's the shoe situation here? I'm feeling loafers, you know? I don't think we saw the shoes. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm feeling very shiny, very pointy loafers with the jeans, but I, you know, that's. But just... imagine if he's a barefoot guy. Ooh. You can, you can absolutely, you can absolutely yeah. like just project your own either very pointy or very square-toed shoes onto Robert. Oh, yeah, no, the Essex man likes a uh, likes a tassel loafer like a Russell and Bromley, uh. no sock. Crucially, no sock. No, I mean, it wouldn't be from Russell and Bromley. It would be from a shittier store than that. But like. So, in that vein. between 2015 and 2021, one and a half million pounds was paid by two local authorities to a community interest company run by Robert McGuinness uh, to provide vocational mm. chil- training to children from ages nine to nine to from years nine to eleven, which is ages fourteen to sixteen. Profits yeah. from the CIC should, like uh, by law, have benefited the community. Instead, McGuinness, a Lamborghini driving plasterer turned failed pub landlord, loaned his <laughs> Lamborghini <laughs> driving plasterer. <laughs> That's a hell of a corporate car for a plasterer, isn't it? <laughs> Loaned his bar business £100,000 in the CIC, which now that it's gone into liquidation, it's unlikely I, to pay back. Okay, so we, I know we're going to do an episode about the charity sector at some point, but I find it so funny that like we have regulations for how you can spend money as a charity, and then we just don't enforce mm. them at all. You, you can just do what you want with it, and then the, the charity commission is just like, oh, well, go on then. Yeah, and, and now I assume this chap is to be trusted. In, in this case, it had to be the press investigating it, mm-hmm. and then several local authorities taking it on their on themselves to look into it. Great. Um, huh. So he also spent thousands from the CIC bank account on his own social life, 
including trips to Spain, Portugal, Belgium, and Thailand. Um, uh huh. No, like probably like going I, to like like um Belgium and Thailand. You I, th- say. I think uh-huh. probably going to like Koh Phi Phi or Koh Samui or whatever. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Like going to a full moon party. Yeah, sure. Certainly, um, that's definitely well, the impression you, we all just formed just now. What I love about this kind of guy is that they're so dumb, they're smart. Yeah. Because they do stuff that's so stupid, like just like I'm just going to buy myself a Lamborghini out of this charity bank account, and like literally the people who audit charities are like, well, no one could possibly be that stupid. This must be above board somehow. Yeah, <laughs> it, must it must be. be for, it must be for the kids. He's bought all of the kids a little Lamborghini. Yeah. Like, I, I, right, I, yeah. genuinely right. I think this is a point of divergence that we have with the United States. And I've talked about my theory of like American grifters and scammers, where I yeah. love the American guy who like gets busted by the kind of law enforcement that people forget that they have. Like they get a no knock raid from game. the game game people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We don't have any of those. Like none of our regulators are like technically cops, and the cops don't give a shit. So my TV licensing. Yes. Swap team. So that's my position: is every little thing like TV licensing or charity regulation or whatever, just. Arm all of those guys, please. I think this would work out mm. very differently for this guy. <laughs> so yeah. he uh he here's some of the itemized things he spent money on. Give javelins to all <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> wait, anti like like a defensive anti tank weapon? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I tell you, what, you get hit with one of those, you, you're fucking improving the standard <laughs> of your school. You know what I'm talking about? More than two thousand pounds went on Airbnb stays in a single year, and almost five thousand was spent on pub furniture. One hundred and eighty-two pounds seventy-eight pence. To be fair, that's was, quite, those are quite small amounts of money for the things they were. Which is on. so. That's what makes it so funny. Yeah, <laughs> which is like to, a total of one hundred and eighty-two uh, pounds seventy-eight pence. Was spent in a branch of spar in Praia de Luz, Portugal. <laughs> awesome. By, by awesome. buying tops, a shovel. <laughs> so so powerful, this kind of guy brain that they're on a holiday in Portugal and they're like, time to go to the spa. Absolutely. Pick up some groceries. <laughs> Do some fraud yeah. at the spa. Wait, also, isn't that where Madeline McCann that, went? That missing? is what I was alluding to, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, oh, I see. Yes. Okay. <laughs> got to buy a big sack <laughs> just shy of 280 pounds was spent in 2019 in a single artisan bakery in manchester oh <laughs> he basically just had the oh, charity debit the card and was just like um i'm gonna pop around to spar won't i pick up uh <laughs> pick up some sausages for the barbecue at my absolutely yeah, I was doing a barbecue for the kids <laughs> in Praia de Luz. Yeah, we drove to Portugal in my Lamborghini one at a time. Right. <laughs> I we were doing a Madeleine McCann vigil. <laughs> and what's your problem with remembering Madeleine McCann? Okay, what's the issue there? I think, I think, to be honest, your own callousness is showing in the in the tone of this investigation. I I badly want this guy to brazen this out in exactly this way. You know, you you, you can't prove beyond reasonable doubt that I wasn't buying those artisan donuts for a child that I just had with me. Mm. Those kids loved the Lamborghini rides, okay? It improved their day no end. <laughs> the Guardian has seen evidence that the CIC's bank account was regularly used to pay staff and contractors working on the renovation and running of a pub called The Printer's Apprentice, a bar restaurant in York City Center. It opened in February 2020, a month before the first lockdown, and went into liquidation later that year, owing almost half a million pounds. Oh That's God. what's going to really piss off the people of Bolton, is that all of this money was being funneled into Yorkshire. <laughs> well, that's, now that's a real sectarian divide. <laughs>
Uh, but like just just the idea that like he just spent four forty six hundred pounds in pubs as well. Just on this car, just getting around it. He's got to learn how to drink at night. It's, Gotta buy a child a pint of Stella. No, it's only cider that you can buy them. if they're feeling fruity. You can buy them cider. That's that's all. Um, but also, pre- payments from the CIC account included six hundred and eighty pounds for a pub employee who successfully took McGinnis to an employment tribunal for over seven thousand pounds in unpaid wages. And and he paid back great, what a tenth work. of that. Oh, that's that's the economy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um. But also, like, yeah. But then he paid the legal advisor five thousand pounds to help him avoid. Also, out of the Lamborghini. Interesting. Funds. Yeah, absolutely. So what? What were these? What were the kids doing? Were they just like sitting in like a porter cabin in total silence, or what? More or less. Well, this guy does like donuts around them in a Lamborghini. <laughs> just being like, <laughs> being like, if you, if uh, he's like, if you can learn how to, you know. Hoodwink a local authority out of money for educating you, then maybe you could get a job in the Lamborghini donut business. Yeah. When dumb people get involved with the law, it's always so fun. That reminded me of, I, I used to date a girl who's a divorce lawyer, and she told me a story about a couple who were getting divorced, and the total value of their cumulative assets that they were trying to divide and argue over in court was about two million pounds, and they managed to spend a million pounds on getting divorced. Oh my god. <laughs> Just because they were arguing so much, and it's like, this is, this is like rich people brainworms. So what, what basically what happens right is the the he tried to open a school called Stanley House which was going to charge mm. like up to 40,000 pounds for to local authorities per year to educate kids expelled from mainstream education. That's that, ne- that's a significant amount of money no less. Like that that's mm. some serious private school money. But it, but the thing is the council pays it because any t- anything that's government procurement always is like of course, incredibly inflated. Of course. So it's a yeah. It, it never yeah. opened after inspectors found numerous problems, including an electricity substation easily accessible to children and no outside space. Yeah. Got to learn about electricity, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> right. It's called physics, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this there is was also a large hole in the wall left by a javelin anti tank missile. <laughs> Ofsted declined to comment on this. <laughs> well, it's that apparently, like, um, you don't. You just all. What you do with one of these, right? Is you just never register it with Ofsted, but you charge the council anyway. Ah, and so it's it's a ca- school, but not yeah. if anyone's asking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so, so you roll up to the gates of this, and you're like, "Is this a school?" And a guy's like, eh, "Who's asking? Depends." <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah. The Vedavir column has come under attack from Ukrainian special Ofsted. <laughs> They've been given a needs improvement rating. <laughs> I mean, Spetsnaz is kind of like an Ofsted formation too, linguistically, right? Mm. Yeah, one of those initialisms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm. uh, it, but the other thing, the thing that's really funny is that um, yeah, the Spice Nazis. He set up a company with his dad called Drink Me Dry Limited to run the <laughs> Suck pub. Suck Me Dry Limited, <laughs> called mm. Suck Me Off Limited <laughs> to yeah, run no, the pub. Right. Gettingadicksucked.com. Why, why? Why was it called this? Uh, because these are legends. This is why. I mean, okay, okay but like, what? Why did? Why did he name his whole company Suck This Place Dry Limited? <laughs> Adult, adult, baby, burping. So, um, well, the thing is, it's because like it's it's so he creates these uh, company, and they get this is this is just classic stupid guy stuff. It's like as you say, sort of spins around again and becomes sort of you know instrumentally smart. 
Whereas like uh, mm-hmm. the the liquidator for Drink Me Dry, the company that owned the Printer's Apprentice, a bar restaurant in York that failed immediately. Um, and they drank it dry financially. <laughs> owed, the, owed the community, uh, this the, the foundation, a hundred thousand pounds, but then also to uh, fifty thousand pounds to AMG Properties Limited, which is run by his parents. So just great, <laughs> awesome. Just Absolutely. a guy who was a guy, just pure parasitism. On every zero respect. chance that they've named that AMG properties after the souped-up Mercedes, which is like a powerful this type of guy energy. Oh, absolutely. But it's, it's like, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've. Spar is the McLaren of supermarkets, and it's only place that I shop at. That's right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I just thought this. This is just such a, such a, a perfect encapsulation of a certain kind of just British fucking weasel, mm. and also just like British local government who are like, time to give this guy money. Seems trustworthy. None like, of them have no any money, and they give all of the money they do have away to this guy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you meet this guy and are a like this man has any interest in educating children, or are b like this man seems competent and trustworthy. Like zero chance. Like you would have to be the biggest mark of all time, which unfortunately describes almost everyone who works in local government. Yeah. So I mean, you know what they. They all let's you know they 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 all can they 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 can just go on rides in the Lamborghini together. Fuck it, why not? Mm. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the thing. We all missed a trick. We all should have been Lamborghini fraudsters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Th- that's that's who this country is by and for. And yeah, yeah everybody else. We're opening just dealing up a with Lamborghini it. driving school for disadvantaged kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna need eight million pounds for the Lamborghinis. <laughs> Oh boy. Oh boy. All right. All right. I think uh that's that's about it for today. Um uh hope you're all I hope you're all I'm going to take that again. You learned a lot about mining. You mm. Absolutely. Uh when I was my my two uh, uh sort of, you know, um uh, cretinous co-hosts finally uh shut <laughs> up and let me just have a serious conversation yeah, the two about policy. Cretinous co-hosts. One of us only lies and the other one only tells truths. That's right. I'm not from Crete. Stop <laughs> saying. Yeah, I'm also not from Crete. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, oh, god damn it! I hate being in a riddle. Um, <laughs> never put me in a riddle. Uh, no. So, <laughs> thank you for listening. Don't forget we have a Patreon. It is a classic five dollars a month uh, for mm. a second episode every week. Uh, these two Buy don't know it yet, but I've planned a real a real humdinger uh, for next for this week's bonus episode. Mm. Uh, so do check that out. Anyway, I'm going to be interviewing the Azov Battalion <laughs> about their new role investigating British schools. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, so, uh, see you in a few the days. Azovstead Battalion. Yeah, there we go. You got you got there by the you squeaked it in by the end of the episode. You, you figured <laughs> it me. out. Yeah. There you go. Episode title. Yeah. There you go. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Fuck. I want an Ofsted Special Forces patch now. <laughs> Thank you.